You made it. You've arrived. This is Peter Levitan's Advertising Stories. And you're about to hear entertaining, personal, often instructive stories from deep inside the world of advertising. Welcome to Advertising Stories. This is Peter Levitan. Right now, I am drinking a mango lassi. It's a frothy yogurt drink that I had all over India when I was there in January. Something else I did in India was to meet Satish Krishnamurti, who is head of strategy at Sideways Consulting in Mumbai. This is a serious company, clients like Disney. Satish was also general manager of India's huge telecom, Geo. That's spelled J-I-O. Give you an idea how huge. Facebook is investing six billion bucks in Geo. Six billion. He was also, and I love this story, a behavioral architect at the company Final Mile. One of his gigs, and it's a great story, it's about halfway through this podcast, is how he and Final Mile solved, tried to solve, solved the problem of hundreds of people a day crossing the railroad tracks in Mumbai. It's about behavioral change, as is marketing, as is sideways consulting. Here we go. India, who am I talking to? Hi, Peter. This is Satish Krishnamurti from Bombay. Uh, I head strategy at Sideways Consulting. Uh, so Sideways Consulting. Well, let, uh, let me start there. Why Sideways? Why that word? See, I think it's interesting is to kind of say uh, it's kind of, you know, uh, inspired by this book, The Art of Looking Sideways. And the idea is to say that uh, when you see and look at things sideways, uh, you can find a lot of answers that people haven't found. So it's not about what you're looking at, but how you look at something that counts. And so the idea is to look at everything sideways and arrive at answers to problems. And you're in Mumbai. Uh, yes. A long time ago, when we met, we discussed, we're not going to do that today, <laughs> Mumbai versus Bombay, right? Yeah. And I have to say, when I was there, I thought it was cool if I said Bombay, because, you know, it either meant I was stupid or brilliant. Like it, so which was, because uh, I think cool, tra- cool kind of, tra- the idea of cool transcends stupid and brilliant somehow. <laughs> Um, Okay, so Sideways Consulting is your company. I'm going to come back to you because you've got this like incredibly varied career. Uh, Mm -hmm. The art of looking sideways, is that what an agency needs to do these days? Yeah, I think uh, that's very, very important, you know, because see, if you look at the nature of advertising itself has changed. I mean, there was once upon a time when everything was about loud, iconic, thematic stuff within quotes. But now a lot of advertising is invisible, right? And uh, a lot of it is not just advertising, but a lot of it is about how you experience the brand, what other people talk about the brand, uh, what's the product all about? Uh, Is the brand good enough to have a conversation with? And suddenly the, the landscape has gotten so much more complicated. It's not that advertising can solve everything. And that is where it's important to recognize the shift, to recognize the shift and work accordingly. Say that again. Recognize the what? Uh, recognize the shift that shift. advertising is no longer what it used to be. Okay. Uh, 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line. 
All right. And how does, uh, give me an example or just a general overview of what the, I'll call it advertising world, just because that's a word. What does the advertising marketing communications universe look like in India? Uh, I think a lot of it is uh, not too different from where it is outside the world. I see uh, a lot of fragmentation happening. So you have a lot of uh, creative directors, a lot of, you know, heads of business who are living, leaving big agencies and starting their own small shops. And that's how, incidentally, Sideways was also born, right? Uh, the founder, Abhijit Avasti, used to be the national creative director for Ogilvy and Meter in India. Uh, so you would find that is the one thing, a lot of breakaway from big agencies starting to form smaller agencies, number one. Number two, you would find so much of fragmentation, especially in the digital space. So you would have tens of agencies who are doing SEO and SEM. You would have like 20 agencies who would help you build a website. Uh, you would have another 30 agencies who would help you do social media. So I see a lot of fragmentation happening. And it's almost like the long tail, you know, pretty much when you look around you, you just see that uh, there's so much of work happening. And our clients... Leaving large multinational networks? Uh, I think it's a lot to do with, I would think, partnership. So there are clients who need large multinational networks, right? Large clients who need large networks. So if you have, uh, you know, a 50 million ad budget or a 70 million, 100 million ad budget, a small agency cannot do that for you. You need the factory for a big agency. So the big agencies are still there. But the point is that it's almost getting consolidated, the entire industry, because the big clients are sitting with the big agencies. They keep dropping a few small projects every now and then to smaller agencies. But the bulk of the work, the AOR work, gets done by the big agencies. The small agencies are working with the smaller clients because now there is a huge startup and suddenly, like, you know, you have out of the top 10 unicorns in the world, there are two or three in India. And that is where it suddenly starts coming in because you start to realize that this whole concept of branding, the whole concept of marketing, the whole concept of doing a pilot launch, uh, managing, getting, raising funds from VCs, suddenly there's so much of activity going on over there. And that's where a lot of these small agencies are kind of getting the money from. Right. I, I've seen something happen. I wonder if, uh, you know, how, how many people, let's just speak the United States, under, understand something that is happening now that I know uh, you've been involved in over time. And that is Geo. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, Facebook is, is trying oh, to yeah. make a six billion, uh, let me say that again, yes, billion yes, with yes. a b -b 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 -b, billion dollar yes. investment in Geo. So tell us about Geo. And why would Facebook want to invest that much in an Indian company? I think it's nice, right? There are three, four things that are going on for Geo. Uh, when I launched Geo, and uh, I mean, I worked for like three years before Geo was launched. I built the entire uh, foundation along with the larger team at Geo. But uh, there are three, four things that are going on for Geo. One is that it's the world's largest 4G data network. Uh, so what Geo has done is that it has disrupted the entire data scene in India. So now there is so much abundance of data. I mean, I could be 
on the road and I will happily download a 500 MB file without thinking twice because you're getting one GB a day. You're getting 30 GB a month from your carriers. And that's what everyone is doing, right? So that's the first point that has gone for it is that it has set up the world's largest 4G network and it has disrupted the data scene in India. So everyone now is on the internet, whether they know it or not. A lot of people don't know that they are on the internet, you know, because they're just kind of, you know, browsing through apps and figuring out and they know that this is a new thing. That's the first one. The second thing that's going for Geo is that it's got about 315 million subscribers. And suddenly there is a huge play. And what I'm kind of coming down to is database. What I'm coming down to is the amount of people you can target for advertising. And thirdly, what Geo has going for it as well is this whole idea of content. So with these 350 million people, you can kind of figure out the kind of content that they're watching. So it's become a kind of a powerhouse, right? And now they're also launching fiber networks, something like a Google Fiber. Uh, they're also kind of, you know, getting into a one GPPS direct to home network connection. So now look at the amount of stronghold that Geo has over the Indian diaspora. Like pretty much everyone is on Geo. Everyone is enjoying all the data that Geo is providing along with the content that Geo is providing. I mean, it's like a sitting duck for Facebook. Facebook has access to so many people. Facebook can target so many people, WhatsApp and kind of go on. And that's what Geo has also done now is that they have started WhatsApp shopping. So Geo Mart, if you kind of read about it, is basically connecting your local neighborhood retailer. We call Kirana stores. That's the word that we use like bodega. Over here it is Kirana. So local Kirana stores are connected with you on your WhatsApp. And that's what Geo is doing. And look at the amount of opportunity that Facebook has, right? In terms of targeting, in terms of ad placement, in terms of everything else. So why not? I mean, if I was Mark Zuckerberg, I would do that too. You, uh, I believe you have Flipkart as a client. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. And Flipkart, if I'm not incorrect, is at least for the time being the leading e-commerce aggregator? Kind of. I mean, with, with Amazon, they run neck to neck. Okay, so will the Geo Facebook consortium, I don't know the best word, uh, be direct competitor to the Flipkart Amazon world? Sure, I think uh, in a way, yes, and in a way, no, purely because I think they are trying to take different slices of the pie. So uh, a Flipkart and an Amazon has built up an entire e-commerce backbone. And that is built on this overall marketplace model. But Geo is not doing the marketplace model yet. What it is trying to do is it's trying to do this omni-channel thing. Uh, while Flipkart and Amazon haven't yet started doing this omni-channel thing. So if you look at it, uh, each one is entering the, the pie from two different directions. Uh, Flipkart needs an omni-channel presence and a Geo needs a marketplace presence for it to start. Uh, competing with each other directly. So right. uh, they're just kind of growing the pie. So this is obviously uh, the world, including Indians themselves, are looking at this uh, uh, multi-billion person, trillion opportunities a day marketplace mm -hmm. and uh, a company like Facebook just pouring in big, big billions. 
It's right. it, okay. So obviously something we, we need to keep looking at. I'm going to, I'm going to tell us a quick little story because I wanted to illustrate what I, what I'm curious how you do marketing in India. So you and mm-hmm. I met in Mumbai and we went yes. to a restaurant, a nice restaurant. Mm-hmm. We went upstairs uh, yes. We started talking. There was a table next to us of 15 Western women. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> remember? Yes. <laughs> Who were talking very loudly. Yes. And you and I could barely hear each other. We even said maybe we should move the table. By the time yes. we said that, the restaurant was full. So we're staring at each other, screaming. Mm-hmm. And it. I'm going to use it as a metaphor for trying to figure out how you market in India. So... I think most people know India is a pretty big country. Right. They probably don't know that it's many states. There is not one India. It's many Indias. I believe there are 22 official languages. And many uh, more dialects. And many more dialects. Okay. So in this sort of, I wouldn't call it chaos, but just complexity, how do you make decisions about how to market not only this world of different languages and dialects, but a world of different cultures. How do you do that? Mm. Uh, interesting question. Uh, I, uh, I don't want to sound generic, right? But a couple of things is to kind of say, how do you drive value? Because if you look at India, India is huge value-seeking culture. So where things get recycled, things get upcycled, uh, things get repaired. So the idea is that suddenly you realize that India is such a huge value-driven culture, right? I'll give you four or five examples. Uh, You have alteration tailors all over the place. So, hey, you know what you want to like kind of, you know, your jeans are a little too long. You want to get them tucked short. You can go in 20 minutes, you can get them cut short and pay like uh, 20 cents and come back. You can get that done. Cobblers are all over the place. Oh, you know what? Oh, you have a slight problem with the sole or your little heel broke. Go ahead, get it fixed. So the point is that everything gets recycled. Everything gets upcycled. Uh, A lot of hand-me-downs kind of keep happening over here. People keep wearing the same thing over and over and over again. So I think what is there is a lot of value-driven culture that comes out in India. And I think that is what drives the way they go about shopping. To say that, hey, you know what, let me look at four things and try and see what am I getting. Because there's this huge, suddenly, right, uh, there is this huge category of refurbished that has kind of come up. Because now Indians are realizing that, hey, uh, why should I pay, uh, I'm going to use Indian rupees, uh, I'm trying to convert it, but you know, why should I pay 50,000 rupees for an iPhone when I can get an iPhone experience for 25,000 rupees? And as long as an iPhone is an iPhone is an iPhone, it doesn't matter if it's a 7 or a 10 or an 11, an iPhone is an iPhone. And that is where I think, so that's the first thing, right, is how do you drive value for them, Uh, which could also be the way uh, you position the product. I mean, when we were doing something on toys, you realize that mothers want toys which kids can play more than once. Because they kept telling us that, you know what, I don't want to buy a toy where he plays once and then it gets kept into the attic. I want something that they can do more and more. More than just value in money, Peter. It's not value in money, but about value in the toy. 
So mother said, I want to know if the toy is going to teach him something. I want to know if he can learn something from the toy. I want to know if he can do something else. So the point is not just value from the money, but value from what the, the, the product is actually giving. So I think uh, that is one huge part. If you keep that in mind, half your problem is solved. And then, of course, it's about you know trying to relate to them in their way, relate to them in their language. Uh, a lot of it uh, is if you go down grassroots, uh, uh, the kind of language that works in a West India is very different from something that works in a South India, very different from something that works in a North India. So how do you go about relating to people? So a brand has to be different things in different parts of India, but yet have that unified appeal. And I think that is where the complications arise. Right. So if you were, let's just be very, very traditional for a second. Let's say you create a mm -hmm. television commercial. Do mm -hmm. you have to record that in multiple dialects? Very much. I mean, there is, it's like a given. I mean, there are, there's no argument about that. Let me switch gears for a second. You are, you really have an extraordinary background. You worked in, uh, well, you went to school in New York, you, mm -hmm. uh, in New York State at yes. Syracuse, which is an advertising school. I assume you went to that division. Yes, yes. Okay. Got my master's in advertising. From and you also uh, went to school in Pune, if I said that right. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much. Uh, you also worked in New York, mm -hmm. and now you're working in Bombay. How does, like, where were you born? How does that, what's the career trajectory? Yeah, it's interesting. See, um, when I went to school in Pune, I did my mechanical engineering. So I got my bachelor's in mechanical engineering. And uh, I was far away from advertising. But you know what? Like midway through my engineering, a lot of my friends started getting into advertising. So I would hang out with them. And I would say, hey, because, you know, you're, uh, if you did a non-engineering field, you would uh, study one year lesser than an engineering field. So while I was still in college, my friends had gotten their first jobs and I would ask them, what are you guys doing for work? And I would hear what they did for work and I would be like, damn, this is what I want to do. So I think through my engineering and midway through my engineering, I realized that uh, advertising is where I want to be. And that's what I did. I immediately got into advertising immediately after my engineering. And uh, I moved my way around advertising for like three years in India. But the best part is that when you're in India and then, you know, you start looking up Lerzer's archive, you start looking up the Khan, you start looking up one shot, you start looking up Clio and you see work and you're like, damn, these agencies are really good. So I got so inspired by what happens on Madison Avenue that I said, you know what, I need to go and work there. You know, how do you go and work there? You know, you, you have to make it a reality. And people told me that the best way to go to the States was to say, if you go and study over there, and that would be the best ways to get an entry. So I said, hey, you know what, why not? Let's take the GRE, let's take the GMAT or the TOEFL and try and figure things out. And that's what I did. I uh, took my GRE, uh, got admit into Syracuse University, and I did my one-year course over there from Syracuse University. And uh, that was it. After that, there was no looking back because during spring break, uh, during my course spring break, 
I went down to New York City and uh, I just met agency after agency after agency in that one week. So all the agencies that I'd seen in the Lurzer's archive, in the one shot, in the Clio, suddenly I was sitting in the lobby and I was talking with people. And that is what kind of, you know, inspired me so much. So I moved from engineering into advertising in India and then went over to the States and did my advertising. And uh, it was brilliant because I worked at Mad Dogs and Englishmen, a very, very small agency, which is now Walrus, by the way, uh, Walrus NYC. And uh, it was great. And uh, then got laid off over there because <laughs> they had to shut down shop. Uh, I went over to TBWS Day, worked over there for like two and a half years and worked with the best names in the business, right? Uh, right from Jerry Grab, did a couple of projects with Niklau, uh, hung around a lot. Uh, you know, in the hallways, doing a lot of work on new business and healthcare, and then got laid off from TBW as well because we lost the sprint business and they had to lay off people. And then from there, moved on to Naked. So the point is that if you look at the journey, uh, there was something that in India that inspired me to go to the States and work in an agency over there. And uh, I managed to play my cards right, and I was at the right place at the right time and managed to be in the right places. Well, it's always, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a saying, luck is for rabbits. Uh, the reality is you need, certainly need luck, but no, you, need, no. you need to put yourself in the right place for that luck to happen, right? Yes. So should I, you, you worked on Sprint. Did I hear that? Uh, no, I got laid off before because of. Sprint. Okay. All right. So, so how do you wind up? So now you're in New York, you're at these like super cool agencies naked. It was funny earlier in the conversation, you said naked and I was going to stop for the audience and say, let me just explain. He's not saying he is naked or was <laughs> naked. He worked at naked. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you've yeah, had yeah, that. Yeah. I'm sure like, you know, you've had that conversation. People go a naked, yeah. uh, which is a great I brand know. name. Uh, I didn't know how to break it to my mom who was back in India. I know. <laughs> well, the brand names that you work for, uh, you yeah. know, Mad Dogs and Englishmen is brilliant. So, uh, you can't yes. forget that name. Uh, naked, yes. you can't forget. But I will tell yes. you, it's pretty damn easy to forget, forget TBWA, Chiat Day, New York, or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No. I mean, that was a, that's <laughs> a mess. Uh, but that's a, all right. That's a, that's a different story. So you've been around the block, right? Yes. All right. Yes. So again, switching gears for a second, there was, uh, there's a case study about a program that you guys did. I'm, I was sort of curious about. It was keeping people off the tracks at Mumbai oh, yes. train station. Mm -hmm. give, mm -hmm. me, give me that story. Yeah, so this happened when I moved back from Naked. Uh, I moved back to India to join my boss who started a behavior consulting firm called Final Mile. And the whole idea was to say, how do you take learnings from behavioral economics? How do you take learnings from cognitive neuroscience, put them together and actually arrive at solutions? So that's what I did for three and a half years. Uh, I worked as a behavior architect uh, at a consulting firm. And this was interesting purely because uh, the railways came to us, the Indian railways came to us and it told us, hey, can you stop people from trespassing? Because a lot of people are crossing the tracks and they're dying. And uh, when people die on our watch, it becomes a big logistical nightmare for us. 
because you have to file reports, you have to kind of get things done, you have to like kind of pay compensation and stuff like that. So uh, what we did at Final Mile, this was a pretty iconic project actually that we all worked on. Uh, we said, let us try and understand what happens. And we went and I've actually walked the railway tracks all over Bombay to try and identify where people enter the railway tracks from, where they exit the railway tracks from, why do people die? And we told them this one thing, right, is that I can't stop people from entering the railway tracks because about 65 to 70% of Bombay's central railway line is next to slums and people live next to the railway tracks. So you can't tell them, don't enter the railway tracks, you will die. And they will tell you, you know what, I've been living here for 20 years and nothing has happened to me. So you don't tell me to cross, not to cross the railway tracks. So what we did was uh, we sat for about six months. I blended in with the, the, you know, trespassers over there, wore like, you know, ragged clothes, sat down with the drug addicts under the bridge and trying to make friends with them to see what is going on and observing how people trespass. And after about six months of uh, proper ethnography, understanding behavior, we came up with about four behavioral solutions. The first one was to say, how do you break people's overconfidence with the, this example that I gave you that nothing will happen to me. So we broke that overconfidence by making people scared at entry and exit points. Uh, where we used someone to show the fear that people would have when they come in front of a train and they can't do anything. And we didn't put any messages over there. We just stuck that gory picture over there. So the point was to say, how do you get people to feel scared when they cross the tracks? Because it's important, you know, the, the train is 40 tons and you can't stop it. It needs like 600 meters to stop. And it's crazy, right? So that was the first thing that we did. The second thing that we did was we realized that people couldn't estimate the speed of the train coming towards them because there is this whole concept of what you would call a Leibovitz principle, which basically said that uh, bigger objects seem to travel slower than smaller objects at the same speed. So you think that the train is coming slowly, but it's actually hurtling towards you. And before you know it, it's too close and you freeze. So we said, how do I get people to actually judge or estimate the speed of the train as it's coming towards them? So what we did was uh, on the tracks, we put yellow lines on the tracks, on the sleepers. So as the train was coming towards you, the yellow lines kept disappearing under the train. If the yellow lines disappeared faster, you knew that the train was coming faster. If the yellow lines took some time to disappear, you knew that the train was coming slower. So you could make your decision. So that was the second thing we did. The third thing that we did was we realized that even if the train was at a particular place and it didn't honk, people would cross the tracks. But if the train was at that particular place and it honked, people would stop. So we said, why don't we institutionalize this? And we realized that if the train was at about 120 meters from the entry and exit points, and if the motorman honked, then people would stop and not cross the tracks. So we institutionalized the honking for the trains. And that was the third thing that we did. The fourth thing that we did was we realized that if trains are coming from different sides, and if all trains are honking, 
the sound gets mixed with each other and the trespasser can't figure out. So he crosses track number one, but before he can get to track number two, he realizes the train was on the left side. He didn't see the left side and then he gets hit by that train. So then we said, instead of long honking, do staccato honking. So that you go, pam, 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 pam. So the minute you kind of break the sound, you automatically, your ears get a sense of where the sound is coming from. So we did these four interventions and we dropped the death rate from 23 to 9 to 1 to 0 and it stayed at 0 for that stretch. And this is what it worked. And it worked out really, really well. And it worked out so well that uh, this got replicated across the entire Central Railway. And this also got replicated across the Western Railway. So, yeah, it was, it was one of the better, best projects that I've worked on. I heard, and it's actually triggering something in me. There's some fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a use of visuals, which, mm-hmm. which humans understand, and sounds right? Mm -hmm. And this is Mm -hmm. all about behavioral change and getting people to do something that want to do, but for whatever reason, consciously, subconsciously, they can't. So here's my, you know, you could say this is a reasonable or unreasonable lead into a question. Business development in New York, Mm -hmm. and obviously you guys are trying to get new clients in India. Mm -hmm. What's your take on, and, and it, Indian market may be the same as the USA market. What, what is, how do you get new clients? Yeah, so I think, see, uh, business development uh, works on three, four things, right? One is that the client needs to see that you have the capability to solve stuff, number one. Number two is that the client needs to see that you are an able partner to solve it. Because the point is, I keep telling people, right? Great strategy is made through partnership. I, I can't be a vending machine where you tell me, hey, Satish, think of a strategy for coffee, and I come back tomorrow with a strategy for coffee. That's that's the second part, right? Strategy has to be driven through partnership. The third thing is that if you have to come up with great work, you need to do the work to come up with great work. You can't lock yourself in a room and tell that, hey, you know what, I thought about it for two weeks, and here's my 50-slider deck, and here's my spec creative. So I think it's very, very important to A, show capability, B, uh, respect that strategy and great work only comes out of partnership. And three is to actually go about doing the work to show the work. Uh, So typically the way uh, we have gone about sideways is that we don't pitch. And I know, I know, of course, you've written Mm. books on how to pitch. But uh, the point is that, you know, we just don't pitch. And that's because purely uh, the founder Abhijit also believes in this, that, you know, you are selecting a partner. You're not shopping for work. And this is what we end up doing is whenever we have, and we've actually won a lot of businesses. Uh, we won three big businesses uh, this way by telling the clients, you know what, we are not going to pitch, but this is what we will do. Oh, you are running this kind of a business. You know what? We've done relevant work for this kind of a business. So oh, you're doing uh, online e-commerce. You know what? We've done stuff for online e-commerce. And we've done stuff for this kind of a stakeholder or a target audience. Let me present to you the case study and show you the depth and the rigor that we go through. And what's the work that comes out? Number one. Number two is to say that, you know what we'll do? Why don't you give me a brief? 
instead of coming back with a strategy and spec creative, what I will do from my end is I will give you a detailed proposal on how I will go and approach it. And that is what I will do because you have to trust the process. You have to trust that the partnership in between you and me can actually come and arrive at something magical versus you telling me, hey, you know what, I need an ad, give it to me in 10 days and I give you an ad in 10 days. It doesn't work that way. I mean, even if you look at the way Apple worked, it was only because Steve Jobs and Lee Clow had that, that relationship and that partnership that Steve Jobs pushed Lee Clow and Lee Clow pushed Steve Jobs is what Apple stood for and why you have what it's today. And that's very, very important to recognize that you are not shopping for work, but you're actually looking at a new partnership. And can you get that out? So this is what we've done. And uh, we've always ended up winning business like this uh, because clients can then see that, A, we have the capability. We've worked on similar clients. Uh, we know how to do stuff. Uh, they can see that we have years of experience. There is pedigree in the team. We know what we're talking about. We ask the right questions. And that is how you build trust. I think the, the point of not having business, the fear of not having business has to move to a space where you can build trust in the client and get the business to trust in the client. Well, I agree completely. And yes, I did. <laughs> I did write a book about pitching. I will say that uh, I think the pitching, the pitching process is flawed, mm -hmm. that uh, the client that you want, a client that a smart agency wants and should have, should be able to look at the agency uh, or the, the consulting firm, whatever the terminology is, and be able to say, I get these guys, I see what they can do for me, yes. I, I yes. want it. And when I interviewed Matt Falk from Basic, which is a San Diego mm -hmm. agency, uh, very early on they did some work for Beats by Dre, the headphone company. Sure, sure. And because they did really smart work for them, they started getting incoming. People said, "We yeah. want to work with you because you're smart and your creative and experiential solutions look like something that will work for me. I don't yes. need to talk to five agencies and have them." pitch me. So I, uh, I think it's, I, you know, I agree with you completely. I want to give you guys a compliment. You have a you know, very sharp website. In my notes, I'll, I'll send people to how you got your logo uh, together, which of course yeah. is a story. Um, yeah, you know. thanks. All right. Uh, but here's just a, a side note. Uh, I'm always interested in how agencies present case histories. And you have a kind of an interesting little device, which is where you drag the circle into the other circle yes. on the website. Yes. Now, uh, uh, you know, that may go back to your behavioral background, but I thought it, it, you know, most of cases are so static, right? Mm -hmm. uh, th that gave me, a, it was like a toy for me, right? I, I, I used, yeah. the, uh, used the dragging device to create more, int I said, okay, what, what's coming? Which I, thought I, was, which I thought was quite good. So that's just a general compliment about your website. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So we're going we're gonna to end soon. Uh, is there anything mm -hmm. that uh, you should be telling the world? By the way, side, I'm going to say this very fast. I thought that the, the work you did with the train tracks uh, was the kind of work that could actually be used in the behavioral side of the COVID 
19 pandemic. And, I, you know, this is a very long subject. I don't mean it for us to get into it, but we have a problem in the United States where wearing masks has been politicized. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a Republican, masks are bad. If you're a Democrat, masks are good, which is absurd. It has nothing to do with mm-hmm. politics. But what I'm not seeing out of our government in the United States, and it's possible in India as well, is any intelligent use of um, everything we know about how to shift thinking to get Americans to do something that they should be doing for their health, which is, uh, to me, the metaphor of the train tracks. Mm, so I'm going to I'm going to introduce you to Donald Trump. He'll be uh, <laughs> coming to visit you next week uh, if he makes it out of Tulsa. I don't know if you're following sure. that story. It's insane. Um, having <laughs> having an indoor yeah. political rally in the middle of a pandemic. Again, another uh, a, another subject. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I should be shaking hands with him, though. But mm. yeah, I don't mind meeting him. No, he, he's actually a germaphobe, so he probably won't shake your hands. Uh, all right, so what is, if, if you could leave the universe with one message, lay it on me right now. It's a tough question. Go ahead, lay it on me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's about uh, finding uh, what you are scared of doing, what you like to do. And I think you have to be somewhere in the middle of what you like to do, what you're good at, and what you're scared of doing. And uh, just keep doing that, you know, because uh, I keep uh, thinking of this uh, Arthur Clarke quote uh, whenever someone asks me stuff like this. You know, when you ask me an existential question, I think of the Arthur Clarke quote, which basically says the only way to define the limits of the possible is to push beyond them into the impossible. And it is so true because, uh, you know, that's what you want. And uh, you want to keep doing the impossible and you are in the possible. So how do you move from the possible to the impossible and you make the impossible possible? And I think that's very, very important, right? Is to constantly push beyond the possible into the impossible. And that's how you define the limits. Uh, I was reading this interesting book, Small little book on how uh, cartographers do the map of the world. Because everyone thought, from Europe, everyone thought Africa was just a big white desert. Because that's how they entered Africa, through the Sahara. And it took someone to take a ship and go around Africa to realize that there is so much more to Africa. So unless you don't travel, unless you don't go that journey you will not be able to figure out the right story. And you might always think that Africa is a desert, but then you realize that, hey, you know what, there are so many things. So I like this Arthur Clarke quote a lot. And uh, I keep, keep looking at it all the time, you know, whenever I need inspiration. Very good. Well, I spent uh, a few years at Saatchi and Saatchi, and our, me- our message was nothing is impossible. Mm-hmm. And it, as you know, it drives you to get past your uh, current solutions, historical solutions, into solutions uh, that haven't been tried or even thought about. And, and I very much think after looking hard at Sideways and the work that you've done that, that you guys uh, are, are pushing the envelope of getting past what, <clears throat> what, what is expected and what has been done before. So I congratulate you on that. 
Thank you. And as you know, you have an invitation to visit me in Mexico. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> as, <laughs> as soon I would as... Love uh, to. My wife would be ecstatic. All right. As soon as people actually can get from A to B again, uh, that'll be cool. Uh, yes. So I, I want to thank you a lot. Uh, the next time we eat in uh, uh, Bombay, I will be back. We'll find a quieter restaurant. That's true. That's true. All right. All right. <laughs> no, looking forward to it, Peter. I mean, it All was right. fun talking with you then, fun talking with you right now. All right. So, well, thanks. Yeah, like, Th- thank you very, very much for your time. Awesome. Awesome. You have a good day and a great weekend, rest of the weekend. That's fine. Uh, well, I'm going to hopefully be a grandfather soon. So Yes, yes. Congratulations. Man. Yeah, thank you. Very exciting. Very, very exciting. Yeah, very cool. All right. Thanks a million. Take awesome. care. Take care. Bye. That was Satish Krishnamurti from Mumbai, India. He talked about his life. He talked about sideways consulting. He talked about railroad tracks, people getting killed on railroad tracks in India, and how he tried to solve that problem. You can hear much more about him with links on my website at peterlevitan.com, where you will also be able to read 700 blog posts about advertising agency business development, as well as see what all the other podcasts are. So, hey, you can get a lot done when you visit. Do me a big favor and subscribe to Advertising Stories. Subscribe. That means tell Apple and Google and Spotify that you want to get these suckers in the feed all the time. Also, tell your friends so that they can hear this good stuff in the privacy of their own heads. It's really important. Word of mouth marketing works. You know that. Finally, big thanks, big thanks, thank yous to the people that helped produce this show. My producer, Rick Rubin, sound engineer, Meek Mill, and the lady that does the best booking in the world, Sarah Finn. Until next time, when you'll hear from Japan, the man that helped me lose an $18 million account, and even interviews with me. (laughs) Whoa, something to look forward to. All right, guys, RSS feed, do it. Sign up. Don't miss any shows. Thanks a lot for stopping by.